Okay, let me turn that off. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome back to Freedom International live stream. And this is Grace Asagra of Quantum Nurse Podcast. And I'm really excited and to have Matthew back again. You know, as Matthew has always been a regular with us because it's, it's so important that I could have, I could practice my discernment and my wisdom on choosing whom to invite and whom to listen to not not because i we don't have we don't have any of our wisdom you know to know what's good for us but it's just good to be surrounded with people whom you can trust whose intentions are sincere and pure that it is an intention for to serve humanity and for me matthew arit is like that and i bring to you this collaborative podcast as well because our intention, Roy and I, has been doing this for many years now, and our intention is to really serve humanity. And serving humanity is also serving me, serving Roy, so serving others, okay? So it's just that um, constant communication of good service for everyone. So Matthew is uh, a, a um, you know, is to be easy, to a quick, is it like you say, an independent journalist, a political, geopolitical analyst, but he's truly more than that, okay? Sometimes there are just certain words that you cannot um, just put one person in one box and then compare them to all others. But as a holistic nurse, and from the very beginning of my wisdom as a, as a teenager, I knew that there's so much more to that we should see and we should hear and we should look at. So Matthew brings that holistic perspective for my understanding. And I be, I also like to respect so much my uh, different people's culture. And what I like with Matthew is he brings that cultural in, importance. And, and of course, he when he points to certain poets and scientists, musicians. I love that too, because when I was growing up, Matthew, I have this uh, aunt who's, um, is a, her major was creative writing and um, literature. And when we used, he used to, she used to bring us outside and lie down on the grass and, lead, and read poetry, looking at the stars feeling feeling the moon um okay we don't have to talk about what moon is really is but it was just like that environment of being up outside and on the shore and on the beach and dark so for me these are all important and so there's like no differentiation between science and spirituality everything is kind of all co connected so when matthew you know uh, posted that his book is out and his latest book is The Science Unshackled, Restoring Causality in a World of Chaos. I like that word science and unshackled because for the last four years, for most of us, everything is like science, science, science. Aren't you following science, 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 follow the science. But whose science really is it? Mm. And what really happened to science? So Matthew will, uh, will help us you know, understand more, you know, what truly happened to science and 
how 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 can we apply it apply what we know in our daily lives without only the application of certain theories and knowledge that it could truly be a real truth for us so matthew is also a professor at the american university in moscow and when in his his uh his uh, credentials are getting longer and longer so to make it short uh-huh. Yes, yeah. go to risingtidefoundation.net, canadianpatreon.org, and go do the, in the substack as well, okay? And they, him and his lovely wife, Cynthia Chong, has all also been uh, doing a lot of videos. And I, in fact, my first question with Matthew would be, when you are going through your next book, or to your neck, whichever, either the video, the book. How do you, what's your process? Like, uh, do you know it now, what you're going to do in two years? <laughs> or mm. do you do you have some certain connection of, from, from the creator, from God, from the source that is kind of leading you so mm. that you can provide that tangible outcome of your of your being. So how is that for the beginning? <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, and, and yeah, hi, Grace. Hi, Roy. I, I always love chatting with you guys. And Grace, that was such a such a lovely, generous, I, I feel overly generous introduction, and I'll, I'll try to live up to it as, as uh, but no, I mean, for that for that first question, um, it's a great one. And uh, I think that it's a little bit of uh, both plan, like there, there's a little bit of system and a little bit of um, spontaneity in, in these sorts of things. Like the future is, is, you know, governed by sort of, there are certain trajectories that our planet moves on, that our galaxy is moving in regarding a constellation of galaxies that we know very little about. But there's, there's certain momentum already in process. And, um, plant, I mean, planets can't choose another orbit than the one that they're in. They're, they're relative, they don't have the free will to, you know, d- wake up one day and say, I'm, I'm feeling like, like Venus, even though you're Mars, you know, like they're, the, the Mars is going to be Mars. Venus will be Venus. You know, the planets will be the planets. The atoms will be the atoms. They'll, they will have relatively, uh, deterministic, but I say relatively, cause they're still within a, a creative universe, right? At the end of the day, there's a, there's, there's a limitation to that word deterministic um but they won't be able to choose to be other than their nature uh human beings have the additional factor free will and i feel like there 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 are trajectories that my mind moves in uh as all of our minds do and and being having the the opportunity to uh to write um which came about around 2000 and early 2019 is where i got my first offer um, from the Strategic Culture Foundation to uh, to uh, receive remuneration for the first time for articles, um, and I was like, "Wow, you're actually I'm, I'm going to get paid a little bit to to do writing." And I I had always just did this out of you know just the need. It's like a need uh, for years. So I was, I was like, "Wow, great!" And it came the same day that I lost my job uh, in a, in a crap job that I was really despising. So I was like, "This is perfect. This is the universe speaking to me. I should really like." take this seriously. And, and so, you know, you're, you're like, okay, well, I, I have, I have to do something that, that merits 
um, the remuneration and, and it's a great platform to, uh, to amplify the thoughts I have inside of me with the, the things I've been working on. And hopefully I, I can, I can, I, I, I had a view to try to, whatever I tried to analyze geopolitically to try to provide it, you know, in a, in a manner that would be edifying in some fashion to the reader. So I didn't want to just inform. I, I always had that morally in my mind that I, I want to provide something within my composition that will give people an insight that if they're sensitive to it, will give them a power of thinking for themselves in a greater degree about something. Um, edification, right? The uplifting of the... Um, but you start doing this on a regular basis and, you know, it's like it's like the iron heats up. The, the, it, it takes a while when you're, when you're, when you're uh, molding uh, iron as an ironsmith uh, for the heat to start making the iron malleable. That's sort of the creative process in my mind. But when, when the momentum gets started, the, the, the heat gets hotter and, uh, and it's easier to, to start, a to, to chart out goals for yourself. You're like, okay, I, I'm, I'm more sensitive to something that is needed as an analysis that is in the world today regarding whatever is going on regarding COVID uh, things going on or misinformation I'm seeing on um, Ukraine or the Middle East or whatever, you know, you pick a thing. And um, oftentimes the analysis is complex. The world is more, much more complicated than the simplistic analyses were given. Even amongst the alternative media world, there's an over a tendency of oversimplifying to in my taste, at least I, I, I want nuance. I want to, to see the historical currents and, as you pointed out in the introduction, as soon as you scratch on one on one thing, it doesn't take you long if you're if you if you're a universalist to find the everything connected to anything that you're scratching on. Right. <laughs> you're looking at something in the scientific field and all of a sudden you're it, it's not too many steps before you're like touching upon the uh, Plato's school of Athens and the battles against the cult of Delphi. And you're like, <laughs> um, so you're you're sort of finding that that there's an intersectionalism in everything. Um, so I, I found that I needed more space than simply the articles of writing a two to 3000 word article was sometimes not enough to, to convey what I wanted. So I would find myself um, choosing to write in the form of in my mind chapters. So I'd be like, okay, if I'm tackling something about the uh, cybernetics, what is transhumanism, right? That's a big question. I can't just write an article. So I, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to write something that will allow me to do a follow-up and I'll, I'll try to have something contained so that people could, if most people I know will just read that one article, but some people will, will want to, will end up reading the second article after that. And I'll, I'll try to do it. So my idea was to, as much as possible, try to do self-contained compositions that would give people some satisfaction, but also some unsatisfaction some wanting more because there is more and I want more. So that would then plant the seed for the next follow-up of the story that might involve going back into the, you know, if it, into, into uh, the battles of the British East India company and Thomas Huxley a, a century earlier that is connected, but not in a, in a mechanistic way. And, and so I found myself doing this as a, as a habit. And um, at a certain point I realized, well, you know, after after the first year and a half of of practicing this this muscle, I was like, well, I I kind of have, you know, looking back at my articles or my essays that I've published, enough for a book. There's like a cohesive story that ties together and could make a a book. So that became one volume, then two volumes, then three volumes of the Clash of the Two Americas book series. 
my wife picked up a very similar uh, technique. She's got her own method, but a very similar technique. And that that's how sort of her empire in which the Black Sun never set uh, book. It's manifested because she was also a writer with me on strategic culture. And um, the, the, the work on science that manifested in, in, in this book here with the, the angel breaking, breaking free of the shackles, restoring causality in a world of chaos happened through a similar process, a little bit slower. Um, but in, in terms of, um, and I, I have a little subtitle saying a sequel to the clash of the two Americas. And I really wanted to put that in there to get people to understand that my work on science had a lot to do with my, my research. And some of it was quite original research on, uh, on deep history and the historical structures of the deep state, so-called as, as it's been called in more recent times, um, which required looking at standard models that standard explanatory models of, of history, history, but they, as they call it, historiography, stupid word, history research, uh, big, big stories, big narratives that are given to historians in academia if they want to be respected, published, um, have a job, you know, rise in the ranks of influence within think tanks or within whatever. You have to abide by certain uh, axioms, certain axioms about what causes history, um, what is, you know, America's story. There's, 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 you could have different flavors. Um, that you can select from if, you know, I'm an eco-feminist, I want to look at history from the, the lens of an eco-feminist, or I want to look at history from the standpoint of, of a dialectic materialist, post-structuralist Marxist, or I want to look at history from the standpoint of a libertarian Austrian school anal analysis, which each one comes with a bag, a set of baggage, uh, assumptions, blind assumptions. Some, some of those assumptions are the same across all apparently different flavors. There are certain common flaws in thinking or in assumed in, in, in assumed laws of history, which, which create what appears to be different internally consistent um, explanations of how history happened, recent and deep history, but also uh, similar systemic flaws that prevent the mind from recognizing what um, I, I could see was a driving force regarding oligarchical oligarchical systems that have a direct continuity because i know that at no point in human civilization have we ever been liberated from the the top-down influence of oligarchical families that maintain a direct continuity of both bloodline but also method and internal culture uh from the days of ancient babylon to the present that have a similar modus operandi although their branding their 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 form of how they do things changes it's the same uh secret sauce you know, that uses very similar elementary techniques of uh, perception management, getting the slaves to fight themselves, keeping people, you know, um, in the illusion of freedom without the real thing. Um, so there's certain techniques that, that all empires, oligarchies will always use that have been there at the heart of Canadian history, American history, European history, you name it. No part of the world is untouched by this, this principle of master-slave relations. And none of the, the historical um popular at least modern historical models that were expected to adopt in polite society uh, take into proper consideration um this this uh this thing so i i was fortunate enough and i know i'm talking a lot but it, it's it's sort of like a it's a big question you threw at me right so um <laughs> i'm sorry i'm trying i'm trying to do justice to it um i i was i was fortunate enough <clears throat> 
to encounter early on in my intellectual development, um, the thinking of Lyndon LaRouche and the Schiller Institute back in 2006. And, uh, and that was after a couple of years of, of, on my own, trying to make sense of Masonic conspiracies. And I, you know, I made certain amounts of little discoveries for my own that I could, I could own, but I still didn't know any, I didn't have a sense of, of causation. Ultimately, I didn't have a sense of solutions. I was still very depressed by my, my research into conspiracies at that point from 2004 to 2006. It was a, a time of a lot of sort of um, emotional pain discovering, you know, the world is, is the way it is, right? 9-11 is a fraud, all this stuff. And people listening know what this is like in different degrees. We all have our, 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 our experience, but um, so that was mine and I lacked solutions. And so through meeting LaRouche, um, through a small office that was available in Canada at the time near where I was working, I, I, I studied some of the literature. I found it, some of it very attractive, some of it very insulting to my sensibilities. There's a big emphasis um, on how human beings were these divine good creatures and scientific progress was a great thing. And in my mind, we're from, we're from I was coming from at that point, I wasn't ready to hear that. I was like, no, human beings are overpopulated. We are, we are toxic. We make empire. We make the world worse. We do nine 11s. We do like, we're, we're just science is, is like nuclear bombs, right? I, I only had the idea of the popular idea of science of like descriptive mathematical, um, you know, um, mad scientists, Dr. Strange loves stiff engineers that didn't have any artistic flexibility that I was, you know, I was going in university. And, and so the university system is very compartmentalized. The artistic world that I was in, I was, I was in fine arts, uh, was very indoctrinated to be, um, emotionally opposed to reason. The idea of, of using your reason was pollutant to the purity and authenticity of, of artistic feelings. And the, the, the engineers who shared the same building where I, in, in my university with the, the, the fine arts students, it was a fine arts engineering building split down the middle, right? The right side of the building was all 18 floors. It was all fine arts. The left side of the building, 18 floors, all engineering. There was no wall separating physically, but there was no intercourse, uh, no, no, no communication between the students or the teachers from either world. It was a, I think a social engineering experiment, um, but a, but a very clear sense of the of the microcosm of the the disease uh, that's been created for all of humankind to be convinced that we're all we have to either be left brained thinkers or right brained feelers. So for me, where I was coming from was I was poisoned with a lot of that. Where I was like, okay, science is left brain logic that makes the world bad. Art, art is right brain, whatever, emotional feeling, expression, uh, the freedom to be irrational, the freedom to be ugly, the freedom, because that's more true, right? If I show my ugliness, my pain, I'm a mirror of the ugliness of, of the world. That's, the, that's to be more true and authentic. So I had a lot of this stuff crippling my ability to appreciate some of the message, the messages I was receiving from the LaRouche Lyndon LaRouche and, and, and his organization's representatives at the time, but it took me a while to like think it through. And then I realized in the course of being a volunteer and working through the, the history of science, the history of how these oligarchical systems came to be. And that's, that's where um, some of my, my spiritual infrastructure was built up was, was through this experience. Um, LaRouche, LaRouche had made a, a point that, that um, science had been undermined. 
and and what we were told was Western science really wasn't Western science. It was a fraud. It didn't exist. The real Western science has been suppressed. And and he made certain provocative statements like, you know, Isaac Newton is a is a fraud. I'm like, you can't say that. That was, you know, so I would hear LaBruce say Isaac Newton is a fraud. I'm like, you can't just see that his formulas work. And, you know, and it and sure enough, when you actually read the writings, because it's like, how do you prove such a statement? Well, LaRouche, Lyndon LaRouche, he's dead now, but he was uh, a self-trained autodidact. Uh, He made certain new discoveries in the science of physical economy in the 1950s. He, you know, he, he, he was on record as predicting um, certain major economic uh, crises um, what, years before they happened, but he was able to say when they would happen, how they would happen. And he had no, no crystal ball. He wasn't using tea leaf reading. He was just looking at certain parameters that other people were not looking at regarding the physical reality of um, food production, how many people there are, what is the ability, the, the energy uh, that, we're, that we have access to such that decisions that were being made by Kissinger and others, you could see clearly, would reduce food production, resulting in tension, resulting in crises, um, or energy production, right? If you, if, you go, if you reduce the ability to have a certain quality of energy per capita, you, you will re- it doesn't matter how much money you have increasing in the system, it'll be de- devoid of real value, and that money is an illusion, that wealth is an illusion if the physical economy, the infrastructure is, is decaying, breaking down. So it's very common sense, but we've, we've been, that's been trained out of us. And LaRouche made a point that it was because of his, his years of research into some of the original writings of people like Johannes Kepler, Leibniz, Huygens, like there's certain scientists, continental scientists, who made wonderful discoveries um, that we could know how who Isaac Newton plagiarized. Because you, you could take any of the famous formulas, whether the calculus, the laws of gravitation that are attributed to Newton, his work on optics, and just by scratching a little bit, you could find very quickly that none of those discoveries were actually made by Newton. They were all discoveries made by people well before Newton using a very different method of thinking that Newton uh, essentially said you're not allowed to do. In his, in his Principia Mathematica, he actually says in his first edition that, you're not, that good science involves simply using your perceptions and extrapolating patterns and calling it universal if you want to be a great mind like he is. And he had rules of reasoning. So if anybody was stupid enough, and too many people were, to use his rules of of mental reasoning, you would be guaranteed to never make a discovery because discoveries are not made that way. You have to use your senses and you have to look for patterns. That's true. But that is not the source of a new new discovery like a Kepler or a Leibniz or anything. That's not how it happens. There is something more to it that is extracted as people learn the dead formulas and use simply their senses. Um, and this quality of the, the spirit, the faith in the beauty, that, 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 that idea that there is a harmony outside of or beyond the, the chaos of the senses, that the heart can work with the mind, the conscience with the mind in uh, leaping beyond the limits of knowledge in making these creative discontinuous leaps into eurekas, into these these discovery moments. It's not irrational. It's not something that is unintelligible, but it is not purely dead logic. No computer can do this. Computers cannot do this. Um, so this is something, but you get it when you read the writings of Kepler because 
you read the writings of people who made the discoveries and they're available. They're not always easy to get. And I try to include as many of those in, in the book as possible. You get a sense, okay, they want, they tell you the method, they tell you even the mistakes they make because they want future uh, citizens to replicate in some degree the, the, the process more than the, the simple byproduct of the process, which is the formula, the, the law of planetary motion. It's the process that matters more than the, the right answer. And, and, and you, get, you start seeing that it's the same thing, whether you're reading Plato's dialogues and Plato's work on Timaeus, or uh, you're reading St. Augustine, another uh, Pla uh, Platonic Christian in the uh, 5th century who is reviving Plato's method in the way that he was, or you read the revival of the, the Augustinian Platonists in the pre-Renaissance like Dante or, uh, or uh, Peter Abelard, or you look at the scientific revolution that became the, the Golden Renaissance, and it was all based upon this same Pythagorean Platonic uh, movement which was based on a, a, the idea that there is a faith in a reasonable, loving, moral creator. Different names are given depending on what religious, you know, culture you're looking at, you know, because the same thing appears in the in the Asiatic world's history, in the Muslim world. It, it appears, you see it everywhere, where great bursts of goodness, new discoveries, increased ability to sustain more people at a higher quality of life will tend to occur just as you have the inverse uh, dark age moments where we we lose the ability to to um, have that creative freedom and that vitality that is needed for society to replicate itself successfully. You have populations that collapse and populations that increase at different moments in different history. And if we look at, well, what are the dominant ideas allowing for either the good or the bad, you'll find certain universal variables that, that appear onto the scene given different names. But so the idea of a, of, a, of a creative, loving, reasonable God is, is a constant, that faith, um, the, the, uh, the idea that there, or the, the understanding that the musicality, the aesthetical aspect of our, our, ourselves and the, the reasoning part must work together. So Kepler is a musician. He's a singer. Um, that's part of his, his power of having insight into the music, musicality of the spheres of the, of the planetary orbits. Um, Leibniz also, he is, he's, um, a poet. He's, he's working with poets and with musicians. He's helping to make musicians, uh, and make musical instruments. Um, Bach in mar in large measure thinks like a scientist as well as a great musician in both. And in all cases, they see their science and their art as a, almost like a, a sacred act a prayer almost, um, as instruments of, of the creator. And it manifests in political revolutions as well for the good. So that, that all gave me a lot of resources that I found very useful in my historical research that became the Untold History of Canada book series, as well as The Clash of the Two Americas. And then I was like, well, at the end of the day, now it seems necessary to make more explicit what was this scientific method that Benjamin Franklin was a part of as a tradition that made the American Revolution possible in the U.S. Constitution, as he was also the great, he was known as the Prometheus in America. He was the, like the greatest scientific mind of the world that he lived in because he was a part, a self-conscious part of that tradition. Um, so how, how, now it's time, I think I should make that more explicit. So the chapters in that book that, that I just published deal with that in different angles from the, 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 the realm of physical science. Um, the, the idea whether, you know, the universe is dead or alive, biological sciences, as well as 
human sciences. Thank you very much, Matt. And please be assured, no, that we, I expect you to talk a lot. <laughs> I, I appreciate you talking a lot, but do drink your tea <laughs> to soothe your throat because, you know, things are happening with our throat when we talk too much. But I appreciate <laughs> it. And yeah, and, and I, I know you can't stop anymore moving forward and being so creative in everything that you do so you could reach out to people who, and we all have different ways of understanding and learning. So that's one thing. If you want to be an effective communicator, that's one. And that's when we were saying about the methodology, the methodology, when we as, um, as learners, as uh, viewers and listeners, adepts, whatever you could consider yourself, when we are aware of the methodology, I think that's one way that we can help discern certain information because the internet and nowadays you know is changing so much that we are like it's like my analogy is like we're in the ocean of information and with all those tides up and down and you'd never know so yeah the methodology and mm -hmm. yes and to to for the viewers if you're still not convinced with this few minutes that Matthew shared to us that you you're not convinced that you should really read and purchase his books and PDF. When I attended Matthew a recent in-person um, meeting or event here with uh, Vera Sharab was supposedly be in person, but she, she couldn't come, so she she shared she participated through Zoom. But Christine Anderson was present. You know what they were giving away when someone registers for that for that event? Guess what? They were giving away your books, your PDFs. Okay? Yeah. So yeah. that's for me, that's that's a sign. That's it tells you that Matthew's um documents, his yeah, historical documents is not just something that could be just published and you know no one should read about it okay so that's how important it is and i'm so i was so excited when someone said you know what they're giving away it's your favorite person i said oh good 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 so thank you for that now hey and <laughs> but what happened with uh when with with the science when you know when you were mentioned and when you when you tackle the science, it seems like the unshackled. It seems like you have to go back eons, ancients of civilization. And it's quite interesting that even if they shackle it, <laughs> and you're trying to unshackle it, but there are many signs that you can't really unshackle creativity and truth and science and you know you you're you're when you when you are connected when we are a part of a perfect creation okay maybe not perfect but there's always the potential to be perfect okay when what happened to that because in in as a holistic nurse when i first read about Al, uh, albert pop you know, and he was the one, the scientist who was popularized the bio photons. And then that also led me to, to reading, um, you know, the book on wor worlds in, uh, in, in, what's that? Worlds in crisis or something. I, in, I worlds in, col in, collision. in collision. Worlds in collision. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't have Matthew's, uh, you know, 
memory, but I, I in my in my heart, I, I encrypt those energy. So Matthew, what happened to that? Because we know that there's it's science is and everything is infiltrated. So people, I, I want you to keep talking about that so that people will understand that, hey, whatever you're seeing and hearing and reading, keep in mind, keep in mind that there could be a lot of distortions. And then, uh, so I'll pass, after that, I'll pass it on to Roy. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I think it's, it's, it's really important to, I, rem I remember, um, I, I've used, I, I brought this up a few times, but I think it's an, it's an important subjective experience from my, my life where I, I feel a bit ashamed that, um, I, I went through a period, um, when I was a dumb, you know, student, uh, maybe 21 or something. And I, I, uh, I was trying to make sense of what is science. I felt intellectually deficient. Um, so I, I was trying to read some pop science books that I found at a, at a bookstore I was working at. And um, that gave me a false sense of confidence about about knowing things I didn't really know anything about. It was like one of these, you know, Cliff's Notes of Scientific Everything. It was, it was a book called A Brief History of Nearly Everything. And it's an entertaining book to read by Bill Bryson. And um, I felt like, you know, now it, I got like a tour of the the standard model quantum of the atom of, of Big Bang cosmology of uh, biological science, Darwinism, everything, you know, so. I was like, okay, now I feel like I could speak and sound smart at parties, you know, and, and I didn't know what real knowledge was. So I figured that was satisfying to me. And, uh, one of the lessons subtly was obviously that, uh, you, you know, the, 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 that science is, is mathematical description of the universe. Um, that we, that the current math was satis was satisfactory to give us competent explanations for everything dark matter you know we could talk about how 97 percent of the universe is made of dark matter and dark energy and and um you know we could talk about when the universe was created and even calculated down to the picosecond or the nanosecond you know when when the four fundamental forces we were told exist split off 13.7.2 you know whatever it is to the in 10 to the 13th degree uh years billion years ago we we know exactly all of these things so i'm like okay if we know all of this well, then we, 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 we know exactly what's in the sun. We know exactly what's in the earth. It's thermal convection causing iron to sort of like migrate up and down, causing the magnetic field of the earth to shift. And we know that, and we know what causes the mechanism of life to change. And we know, we know everything. So I actually got in a fight and I, I, unfortunately, I, I feel like I, I made fun of this kid. And I think I got other people to laugh at this, this open-minded kid at a, at a, at a, uh, in my school who was trying to just say uh, or share his feeling of awe and wonder about how little we know about the universe. And I was like, no, are you stupid? And I, and I eviscerated him um, basically with the idea that no mathematics has told us everything. It's just ironing out the details. And I feel, again, I, I feel if I could go back in time, I would have, I would have slapped myself on the back of the head because it's just the dumbest thing. And I, and I see that now that I've, I've, uh, taken on it. I've shifted my mind in, in terms of looking at things differently. I see this everywhere. Like that opinion that I had that, that made me, um, have that reprehensible worldview is something I, I see in different degrees all over the place. And, and you get it with trust the science, right? Um, and, and, and you have to be an expert with, with a PhD 
in the system in order to have an opinion that should be respected about climate change or about health science or cellular biology or virology or whatever. And if you don't have that, you should just keep your mouth shut and adopt opinions of experts. Right. That, that, that's sort of the, that, that's what we're told we need to do if we want to be responsible citizens is not have our own thoughts or use our own reasoning, but just adopt whatever standards are, are, are accepted by the experts. So that's obviously sick. Um, and then, yeah, when you start like looking into what actually drives cellular health, there's a chapter I, I, I wrote on Dr. Luc Montagnier's work as, as a gateway into this discussion, um, his later work, uh, especially on lights, electromagnetism and, and life and, uh, DNA as well, as well as even bacteria and other cells as being both, uh, transmitters of, uh, of electromagnetic material that allows the propagation of information through usually water mediums, but it could even be other forms of media too, as far as I could understand it, um, as well as receptors, right? So receptors, transformers, even the, you know, every, every cell both receives constant streams of electromagnetic information, some good, some destructive, some not, that's how the cells communicate. And that transforms it through processes we have yet to understand <laughs> incredible processes and then um, transmits that outwards for other forms of communication, leaving also its imprint and into the, the the liquid medium that it might be within, often our body, but it could be a variety of things. And so Luc Montagnier did incredible work on this domain, earning him a lot of enemies. You know, there's a giant witch hunt before he died to take away his Nobel Prize <laughs> because this is heresy. And, and so, but when you scratch on, it's not like he just appeared in a vacuum. There's this whole tradition um, that he was, he was stepping into by doing, by doing this, that was, you know, picked up from somebody who, who influenced him, Jacques ben Benveniste, but also, uh, Fritz Albert Pop, um, the German scientist who, who lived out, I did his great, a lot of great work in Israel on, uh, biophoton emissions, how to measure the biophoton emissions of all cells that are constantly, every time you get a mitosis, you get a little burst of, 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 uh, of, of a photon of, of light being created right? That, that allows for this amazing, I don't know, 40 trillion or more quadrillion. I don't even know how many cells are in our body, but the amount of turnover is incredible. Birth and death of cells is in the 30, 40 million per second. Um, that's a huge amount of like change going on. And to have that type of communication so that our body doesn't either atrophy or, or, you know, our heart doesn't like our heart cells don't overgrow too fast relative to our liver cells or something. It's an incredible amount of communication that that molecular biology, the materialist approach to biology fails at explaining properly as if the, that, that enzymes are materially because we're told enzymes carry the information right from one cell to another that then like unpacks can un, un, unravel a DNA and, and whatever, give, give instructions for what the cell should do and replicate or not. And it's like that trap that the speed is magnitudes too slow in that model to explain what's actually happening. Light satisfies it. Light speed works. So, you know, Fritz Pop himself was was taking up the torch left by people like uh, Gervich, who I go through quite a bit in the in the book, Alexander Gervich, a, a Russian a uh, scientist who worked with Vladimir Vernadsky um, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, um, who who first discovered ways even before the before there were devices sensitive enough to pick up the very low level um, light frequencies that cells emit. Um, he was able to set up crucial experiments using onion roots, 
um, planes of glass that would that would cut out certain types of of EM emissions, especially on the ultraviolet um, level. Um, different quartz glasses that he was also using that would permit the the transference, the, the passing through of certain frequencies of EM emissions. And he was able to relatively quickly uh, prove that there must be from from an onion root growing um, and, and, and separated by another onion root on the other side of a glass, um, he was able to prove that there must be ultra-weak photon ultraviolet uh, emissions that allow for a communication of cells. And he had a crucial experiment that proved it irrefutably. Um, and his work sponsored um, a whole movement in Russia of bio uh, optical biophysics um, who made discoveries in handedness, um, chirality, the, the idea that, you know, certain molecular structures that, that um, you guys hear, you guys heard, heard of chirality or chiralism? No? Yeah. It, is that have something to do with optics also and the light, right? Kind of, yeah. Like it, it, um, it's it's a it's a fascinating domain, but uh, but basically, it's it, it it stems from an observation that you have um, certain molecules that are chemically identical, right? Um, so they'll have the same configuration geometrically to, but they will be sort of like the, the mirror image of each other. So you could have like um, whatever the, the molecule is that gives off the, the flavor of, of spearmint has a certain molecular configuration, right? Certain relationship of atoms and it's, it's copy or not it's copy, but it, but, but the, but, but by arranging the same atoms in the same molecular configuration that gives you spearmint, if you do it in the opposite way, the other handedness, the, the attribute it gives off is something like like lime or something like that, or like the, the chemical molecule that gives you aspartame in one inversely, which has like a, a reception to the electrochemical aspect of, of, of life when, when touched gives you a sweet taste. Um, inversely, it's, it's, it's opposite gives you a, almost like a bitter taste that can kill you. Not to say that aspartame can't kill you, but it's <laughs> one's more direct. So it's, it's, it's weird that you have these or, or fascinating that the same, that a molecular, chemist would not differentiate a qualitative difference between the chiral nature of, of both um, types of molecules, but they are totally different, right? In terms of their qualitative identity. And when you test them out, especially in relation to life, like what their purpose is in a broader scheme of things, and they're everywhere. So you have certain so, spirals. Huh? Go on. Yeah. It, I, you know what that reminds me, Matthew, is uh -huh. in the quantum morphogenetic physics, so mm -hmm. when you're talking about the biofield or better yet more than the biofield is the morphogenetic resonance and that kind of brings me to the theory of the source particle so when you have the source particle that comes out with source particle negative and source particle positive that it's so that it doesn't exactly come out with the same you know um, structure as you define, but then another thing comes up. So that's kind of when you're talking mm. about that, um, you know, theory, that's what comes up with mm. me. So because you say in the, source, the, the source particle, uh, can you define a little bit more in your words, what the source particle uh, means to you? So for me, the source particle is the one that is created with a creator, which okay. is 
omnipotent, which is neither positive or negative or within, within it, is that. So then that is kind of like, that's why I can't fully resonate with the Big Bang theory as well. Because for me, the Big Bang doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense that there's no, and in the source particle, for me, what makes sense is that there's a certain structure that kind of either a structure yeah. that goes down or goes up. So it steps down. So in fact, yeah. not not to give Matthew's head bigger again, but I always think of Matthew as the step down of a creator and we also as a step up of a creator so anyway that's for me that source particle is but it's always okay. have to do with frequencies yeah 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 well that, that's everything is free everything was harmonics and musicality and at the end of the day but but yeah i think like in gervich's work uh the idea of he's got his own word for morphogenetic field but but he he has multiple nested kinds of fields so you have the biophoton emissions or the mechanism of communication um he calls it something a little bit different, but it's it's the same thing as, as what Fritz Pop talks about. But he also describes he's looking a, a lot of his ideas come about through his work on embryology. And and he's he's really fascinated by the the false dichotomization in the debate around embryology in the 19th and even into the, the 1920s, 30s, around the, the the two different opposing schools trying to explain how embryos go from or single celled, you know, fertilized egg into uh blastulas into you know multiply division like a very complex being that becomes like a baby giraffe or a human or a monkey or a fish or whatever so everyone's trying to figure out like it's a, it's a big domain and the fight is between the mechanists and the vitalists both of them bring something to the table but there's also something lacking and gervich is fascinated by what's lacking um and he's trying to take the best of both worlds and you know you got like the hans drisch and the the mechanists on the one side and you got uh, Spamon and I forgot the other guy. Um, no, Drish is a vitalist. Um, uh, Spamon is he? A... Anyway, you get, within the within the mechanistic school, they're of the view that no, every single step of the way, there's no design, there's no there's no blueprint. Every step of the way, any any cell could become anything, and it's every and and so what defines the growth of the of every moment in the sequence of cell to fully formed organism is relatively contained within the directly before, directly after moment, right? Very myopic. Um, the other school is like, no, it's it's all built in from the very moment of the cell, uh, the, the egg being fertilized. Everything is, is preordained um, from the get-go um, in terms of what each division of labor is going to be. And you know, at first, there's a high, a high degree of flexibility of di diversification of labor. So at the early stages of the embryo, Every cell could be literally anything. Um, but then at a certain point, a decision is made right in the, in the process where, okay, this is going to be a liver cell. This is no longer going to be an anything cell. It's going to be a liver cell and this is going to be a brain cell. So that, that, that there's moments, discontinuous moments where that specifically happens. Um, and, you know, certain experiments are set up. So one, one group goes and, and like says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to cut with like a, a baby hair, right? An early blastomere. And I'm going to like take the early, like 16 cells from the top and the bottom and I'm going to, I'm going to move them. So I, and I guess this would have been the vitalist. I forget who would have done, but, but they, but they, they, they separate them. So the, the one that, that was going to become, um, let's say the, the bum is replaced with the, the cells that were going to become the brain. Um, 
and uh, and in fact it works the, the 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 animal then still becomes like a fully formed duck not a, not a not a mutant and so one school appears to win and then the other school says okay well what i'm gonna do i'm gonna and this is where i guess it must have been the the vitalist where he says okay i'm gonna burn with a needle half of the 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 embryo at this at the same stage of development it must have been the blastomere stage where there's like i don't know 64 cells i'm gonna burn the bottom half or maybe a little bit later and and sure enough what happens is it's half an animal forms so both sides seem to be touching on something right and no it's kind of a stalemate nobody nobody wins the debate and what people aren't asking is um are, are the sorts of questions, well, what's allowing the communication to happen to begin with? What's the pattern? And, and, and Gervich is really of the view that there is a morphogenetic whole, which is defining the, the, the end product. So he does believe in that like the vitalists do, but he also allows for the, the, the truths of the, of the, the mechanical school to also come into play too. Cause there is a, a mechanical rigor lacking in the vitalists who tend to be overly into just, it's all part of the plan, man. Like, you know, part of that, that kind of like mushy mindedness. And uh, don't overthink it, you know, and that's making people sort of miss actual evidence that they could be looking at that would give them an insight into looking at the biophoton emissions. So, um, but but the idea that the, the whole governs the parts is really important for all systems, whether it's the galaxy, the universe, our, our body, it's obviously that there's something more than our bodies that define Grace and Roy and Matt when we look in the mirror, right, that... Um, that's always there independent of all of the cell turnover we've had since we were like seven years old, despite all of that, there's still like something as a constancy that's transcendental. So it's like that with the, with the biosphere or, or anything. It's more, all holes are more than the sum of parts. Sorry, yeah. like with the kind of trust the science kind of thing, because a lot of the testing was done in a Petri dish. I mean, mm. that is without the life force. So straight yeah. away, we kind of knew that there was a lot of fakeness. But what I heard recently, and I kind of was like, ooh, made me think even deeper, was the MRI scans, because you're actually lying there in a still kind of meditative state instead of the way you're moving around. So that's not even accurate. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's better than it's like just a... It's better than a, a, a purely mathematical model because it's still coming from you. These are still frequency magnetic fields that your brain is creating. And that's fine, but you're right. It's not like you can't say that that's your natural state because you no know, one ever just like lies stressfully on a, on a, or whatever, in whatever state on a, on a, on a mat inside of a, an MRI machine. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a small sliver of reality. It's not reality for sure. Absolutely. So I'm going to take a little tangent here now because Grace mentioned the moon at the start. I see the planet mm. behind you and a lot of the stuff because, you know, you, like with all the Masonic groups and everything, they're really demonic. They're into the 666 and everything connected with the Earth. And I'm even seeing more of it. I mean, the tilt is like 23.4 degrees. Take it away from 90. You got 66.6. It's spinning at 66,600 miles per hour. And apparently the moon is, I don't know, circumference. It's like 600 by 6 by 6. There are so many things that are connected with the 6 that it's like, this isn't a kind of coincidence. This is kind of, have you ever gone down that crazy rabbit hole? Well, I, I did um, a lot of work ugh, on Kepler and a lot of work on, on physical geometries. Um, one thing that Kepler, so people can actually buy his Harmonies of the World. Um, there, he, he's, it's five, five books that he wrote in 1619 going through how his mind discovered the third planetary law of, of harmonics of motion, right? Plagiarized later by, by 
um, by Newton and, and I would say the whole Rosicrucian occultist network that took over England and that cre created the British Royal Society um, and sort of drove the Enlightenment movement in opposition to the Renaissance movement. It wasn't, it wasn't the organic outcome, as we've been told, of the Renaissance, which, which was the Enlightenment. That's not true. That was a political uh, warfare against to derail the flow of what was brought, what emerged uh, with the, the golden renaissance. It was not a direct, there's no direct continuity. It's a break. Um, and Kepler puts in the, in the, in, in his book, oops, he puts a lot of emphasis on getting people to do work on, uh, on the Pentagon, the, the star Pentagon, the different relationships inside of the star Pentagon. Um, in terms of the square root of, of five minus one over two and, and the, the different types of proportions that can be, have a mathematical representation when you investigate the golden, the golden section. And the golden section for Kepler is the starting point. He's like, start with an investigation of the golden section because this is something that, and he's even citing Leonardo da Vinci, who's doing work also with Luca Pacioli uh, earlier and, and Nicholas of Cusa on this, this, this proportion that we find all over the place when looking at the flow of organic life, the replication of animals, the proportions uh, that we find in living species, even in, in uh, microbes, which we don't tend to find in non-living molecules. So the golden section doesn't seem to appear in inorganic uh, chemistry or physics. It's something which really appears all over the place in living, living matter. Um, however, the, the Kepler has a lot of enemies, one of whom he devotes actually the appendix um, in the form of his uh, warfare against Robert Flood. And for those who know, they know uh, that Robert Flood is very closely in alignment. He's, he's a leading figure of, of the Rosicrucians, which are, a, a, they're basically a, you know, a proto Freemasonic order uh, embedded inside of Britain at this time. Um, who are working to, con to, it's like, it's the, it's the, it's the, the occult soul of the deep state of, of England that had been brought in by Venice that was in the midst of taking control of England and turning it into the base of an evil empire. That's, and so it's this occult underground through the Rosicrucian networks that are represented by Francis Bacon, John D. Robert Flood is a big one. Elias Ashmole a little bit later is a, becomes a leader of this, the, the head of the Ashmolean museum. And so he's a, a in the living world of Kepler. He is his primary nemesis, and they're 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 in a, a hot conflict now. Now Flood is of the view that yeah, we should talk about the the golden section, but when you read Flood's work, it's through purely it. There's zero knowledge. It's all based upon a worship of the relationships, and a um an, an interpretation that attempts to give an elitist feeling for inner initiates who have gone through memorizing certain symbols that are associated with certain rituals that bring them through rites of initiation that give them a sense of elitism over the the masses who are thus as soon as you have that elitist sense that i have secret gnostic knowledge because of my uh self-hypnotic uh process of initiation into a mystery school all of a sudden you can't love your fellow man you just can't like you you you're you're obviously you're a special pseudo divine being it, it puts you into a very bad place, but a very useful one if you're an empire or an imperialist. So in their in their world, they would write their hermetic texts in a fashion that was devoid of understanding. Whereas Kepler's work, he's taking you lovingly through, through the process of how the mind will discover the nature and necessity of the constructions of the Pentagon, of the dodecahedron, as you unfold the Pentagon into 12 
um, faces and wrap it around inside of the uh, an interior of a sphere. And you'll find that that you will create a dodecahedron that that touches the sphere at 12 uh, vertices, right? With with or 20 vertices and, and 12 faces. And inversely, you could take the inverse of that and connect the insides, the centers of each of the, the pentagonal faces of that dodecahedron, connect them together, and you'll get an icosahedron, which has the inversely um, uh, 12 vertices and 20 faces that are triangles. But you'll also have the pentagon, the golden section, show, showcasing itself in different ways in both spheres. These are two of the five platonic solids. The other the other three are the, the tetrahedron, the, the, the cube, and the and the inverse of the cube, which is the octahedron. So if you take the cube and you connect the five centers of the cube, right? All six of the five squares on the cube surface, connect them together, what shape are you going to get? If you imagine it in your mind's eye, right? Imagine a cube. And then imagine the, the center points of the cube connecting together. Can you imagine like what shape you're getting? It triangles in sphere. Yeah, you, you got and triangles. Well, you got you got you got you got eight triangles that will show mm -hmm. that will appear eight equilateral triangles and in the form of um an an octahedron. So eight sides inside inside of that 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 cube. So the cube has an inverse, and and if you do the same thing with the the um the octahedron, and you connect each of the the eight centers of the the triangles of the faces of the octahedron, connect them together, you'll get a tiny cube. So the cube will create an octahedron. The octahedron will create a cube. The the dodecahedron will create an icosahedron. The icosahedron will create a dodecahedron. If you can, if you connect the the faces of the triangles inside the icosahedron, which has twenty faces, connect them all together, and you'll get a dodecahedron with with twelve pentagonal faces. The tetragon is different because it it has four triangular faces, but if you connect those together, you get a you get another tetrahedron. So it's a dual of itself, sort of the mediator. Now Kepler made a point that you could look at the proportions mathematically of these different things if you nest what he called nesting. You could nest them inside of each other. Um, let's see if I have a picture of it here. Um, Just like the simple Russian doll nesting? Yeah, but you got to do it in a rational way. It can't be, abs okay. like, it can't be whatever, um, but there's a way to select them reasonably, um, and you will find certain proportions mathematically emerge, which is very useful in conducting astronomy and looking at the speeds and distances of the planets from the sun. And uh, I don't have the, the graph. I don't know what page he has the graph. But anyway. Um, so in Kepler's world there, he's looking, he's noticing as, as Plato was earlier in the Timaeus dialogue or in the, in the Theotetus dialogue, the, the quantization, the harmonic quantization of all, um, physical space-time. So everything that exists that's ponderable is both a one, it's, it has one, a, a unifying identity, a monad, right? A, 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 as Grace had 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 a, a term that, that was used, the fundamental particle is what you called it, or the, the what, what do you call it? Source particle. Source particle, yeah. Um, so you, you have that, it, there's different names given to it, but it, it's like you have the identity of the thing, which is, um, it's, it's a simple identity, it, it's undivisible. Uh, that get, that infuses purpose, reason, being into the the thing itself in the material world. But then you you also have the material part of its expression, which is infinitely divisible. So everything can be both a um, a oneness. It has partakes. It partakes in oneness, in infinite divisibility, and in infiniteness. I could imagine my 
my cup forever being divided into ever smaller, you know, uh, particles forever. I can imagine that. Um, but then Plato and Kepler, they all make the point that between the one and the infinite, there's the many. And, and it's easy to leap from the infinite to the one or the one to the infinite. And a lot of people make the mistake of doing that irresponsibly without taking the time to first explore the many and their nature in between. And he give, Plato gives the example in his uh, Philebus dialogue of a, of a musical string, of a, just a string, any string. And, 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 you know, there's like one sound the string emits and there's infinite possible sounds you could make within the string, depending on where you choose to, to create a division, right? Plucking the string. But there's specific discoverable uh, 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 points that if you divide the string by half, you create an octave. It has an identity, which is directly half of the frequency of the whole, a, a high C, low C, right? And between the high C, low C, you could take a two-thirds, three-fourths, four-fifths, five-sixths of the string and, and pluck them, hear the sound, and note that their relationship with the whole and with the parts are consonant. They're, they're pleasing to the, to the soul. And uh, Bach's well-tempered clavier, his work um, on um, on well-tempering comes out of his studies of Kepler's harmonics. And you could have a mathematical expression of them. So you'll find that there are certain um, numbers that will tend to occur within nature because of the quantization in harmonics within all of material, chemical, optical uh, aspects of, of reality, material reality. You'll find these harm these harmonies. The golden proportion you'll find it all over the place if you're looking for it, and it couldn't be known through maths, but it could. It, it they always have a mathematical expression that that will always be imperfect because math will always, especially when dealing with these transfinite numbers or irrational numbers like square root of two or square root of five or uh, pi. You know, a higher a higher transfinite. You're always dealing with things that if you try to express it purely mathematically through symbolic language it'll always be an infinite number, like 0, 0.0, you know, one forever. So the mind won't be able to hold it. But if you treat it geometrically, the square root of two or the square root of five is extremely expressible in a, in a, in a, in a way that the mind can completely wrap itself around. You could literally see the square root of two is take a square, right? <laughs> with, with side one, the other side one, the area is one, and then double the square. And as soon as you double the square, you, 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 it involves using the diameter of that first square, which is square root of two. So all of a sudden, what is unexpressible, so-called irrational mathematically, becomes very rational geometrically. That's how it's, and that's how it's discovered. So a lot of the things that I think we find in the in the circumference of the Earth, the different uh, rates of change, come from the fact that they all participate in a quantized divineness, and the oligarchy with their occultism will always try to. Um, you get this with reading Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma. He has a whole a lot of sections on the Pythagorean theorem and the magic of the golden section. There's no knowledge ever. They try to mystify it and co-opt it for mystical ritual without ever taking the time. I don't think Albert Pike ever ever constructed the golden section ever in his life. I don't think Francis Bacon ever did any honest discovery research on the things that they, they want to treat like a, with occult mystery that then they use in their numerological exercises to carry out designs that involve the lives of many people on the earth. Um, you know, doing certain things at a, at a blood moon. I like they, they have their whole, all of this, this occult and yeah, it gets, it gets freaking evil at the end of the day. Like they got a lot of, of 
ritual that they've infused into what should otherwise be a very intelligible, beautiful discovery process of, you know, creation. And they, they, they mystified it for a Gnostic inner, inner elite order of initiates. So yeah, it's, that's how I'd respond that one. I, no, not beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I've even heard that it's actually a lucky number. It's been a good number, and they've just changed it to make it look it's like demonic. So yeah, I'll take uh, everything yeah. good and make it bad. That's what they do. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure are you up to speed with what's kind of happening with uh, Ukraine, but I heard today that uh, like Poland are kind of getting uh, a bit involved, and Tusk is now at the the helm, and I mean he was kind of. The, the the president of uh, Europe there previously like so are you up to speed with what's going on there or have you seen anything because oh, even the yeah. conscription they were bringing like they were women as well from Ireland I saw letters that they were like saying yeah now you have to go to the war so the people that they basically had taken in saying yeah you've escaped the war tons on <laughs> now they're sending them back to fight Oh my God! Are they actually doing that? Are they okay? Yeah. No, I, I don't. I've seen I, the letters. I, like I've actually seen a government letter, and if people kind of knew their sovereignty and everything, because they don't, they're not signing it properly. There's ways of getting out of it, but the fact that that's actually going on in this day and age is insane. Oh, it's really, really absurdly evil. Um, no, I, I, I mean, I, I, I just gotten over a bad flu, so I was a little out of it. But I did, I did read that Tusk had won the elections in Poland, and I was, I was. Very, I was becoming optimistic a little bit about the Polish government that was showing a little bit of uh, cojones by uh, cutting off their support for the Ukrainian military and and sort of not playing ball the way they were expected to for, which I found very 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 useful um, to throw some sand in the gears. But then Tusk, who yeah, for people who I mean, most people listening probably know this. I mean, this guy was the head of what was it, the European Parliament or the European no European Parliament right for few years um this guy's a complete globalist eurocrat fanatic and uh, very dangerous that he's been brought back into play in poland which is very strategic um no i mean the whole ukraine thing it appears to me based on the messaging that we're seeing in the wall street journal in uh, a lot of different parts of the american establishment that that ukraine is ultimately um, not the favored child anymore that they're, that they're putting more of their emphasis upon what's, what's been sparked in the Middle East. But, um, and you, and Zelensky's kind of desperate, you know, like they're, they're not, they're not releasing the promised funds, um, even now, uh, to Ukraine from the United States. They did release a lot, but there's still more that, that they've been withholding. And Zelensky's, you know, being sent on in his usual, he's a, he's a salesman. That's his whole job is just to, to be an international traveling salesman selling uh, the Ukraine cause. And he's, you know, just was sent to like Argentina uh, to, to do his, his thing there and, and, you know, do a little song and dance and beg for cash, beg, beg man for cash. Um, but no, it, it seems like when I was looking at the wall street journal, they, they recently posted something that, that uh, I think had the title. We, it's time to, to recognize that Putin can't be destroyed or defeated in Ukraine. Um, there does seem to be an, an effort to try to create an off ramp and they're, they're sloppy about it. But I don't. I don't exactly know. I mean, it's such a shit show. I. I it's tough to say exactly um, where what they're thinking at this point in the game. Besides, as you pointed out, just throwing more bodies into the fire. Um, I don't know. And you just mentioned Argentina. There. I mean, I've seen a few kind of recordings of their new kind of leader, and he seems. Uh, well, you would think he's like one of the good boys, but I've heard he's first another. Uh, 
World Economic Forum puppet, like, and is just making it look oh, like yeah. he's one of the good. You know, yeah, Malay is, is a complete plant. I mean, the guy, no, nah, people, they got duped. And this is, but it's a good sign. People should take a lesson and, and self-examine their assumptions because we were profiled. Everyone who was championing Malay on were profiled by social engineers who who, who have our, our social patterns down. And so they know the flaws in, in the um, the thinking of most conservatives that they can play, they could play us like a fiddle. If we're not self-aware of how what these flaws are that, that the oligarchy has created for us to to fall into these traps, um, Malay was always it was always very under knowable that he was a, a World Economic Forum devotee. Um, he was always for breaking Argentina. Always made this clear to break Argentina out of any relationship with Eurasia, the BRICS, and put their their destiny into the hands of the United States and the U.S. dollar. Always, he was always clear on that. Always for the the same Austrian school economics that were adopted in the under Kissinger's watch that that justified the deregulation of the economy and under Thatcherism Reaganomics. That was all based on the idea that no freedom is is no government. Less government is good. More freedom for the people. Less regulation for the banks and and private uh, businesses. And ultimately, the 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 it it wasn't like globalization's outcome was an, a set of errors based on good intentions, the outcome was to always get exactly what they got, which was the destruction of small and medium businesses, um, the destruction of the, the, the emasculation, emasculate. Yeah. I mean, the castration of sovereign nation states that would no longer have an ability to influence the economy. That was part of what Na Kissinger created with NAFTA was like the idea that, okay, now you can be sued by a corporation as a national government. If you do protectionism, or if you do capital controls, now all of a sudden private corporations can sue you. You could be taken down at the World Trade Organization. Supranational bodies could like represent corporations to take down nations if they tried to protect their people economically or do something that was outside of the North American Free Trade Agreement or the Maastricht Free Trade uh, Trade Agreement that created the euro. Um, the the whole idea was get it world government through the veneer of capitalism, but it was never that. It was always designed to destroy small and medium businesses, monopolize what little exists and keep everybody addicted to something very controlled while the world would be set up for a system of, of top-down unelected bureaucracy controlling us. That was always the idea. So that's what Malay is doing. I mean, he's calling for basically cutting down the government and sure, there's a lot of corruption and waste. No doubt. Yes, true. But <laughs> by doing what he's doing, you could know that you're going to castrate Argentine's ability to carry out any type of harmonized action as a nation against the oligarchy. You're going to have no ability to defend the people. Yeah, this is exactly what Pinochet was, was assigned to do in the seventies in Chile. All of these right-wing governments that were, were put in power by the CIA in the, in the sixties and seventies and eighties in South America, they were all doing the same thing. Massive liberalization of the economy, privatization of everything state owned. And uh, and they had to do it through the help of like Nazi advisors like Klaus Barbie and all of the leading Nazis that were sent into Argentina and South America. They never left. They always advised the governments of Brazil and South America and, and Chile that always on behalf of of United Fruit and the British East India Company operations to kill the people who uh, under fascism. So fascism was needed to, inf to to be the enforcement mechanism of free trade onto a people who would suffer by having the social safety nets all destroyed everything else, right? Uh, in favor of what the World Bank says is good. So, um, which is just absolute free markets.
And I'm, I'm not against free markets, but it has to be done in a, in a, in a way that involves actual, authentic, honest competition, which you don't get if you have <laughs> a city of London financier oligarchy. You just, it, it, it's just a word. It's meaningless. So Malay is a disaster. And, and he just, he said all the right words that appeal to the, the sensibilities of, of the conservative, you know, class out there. And all you have to do is just say the right words, stroke people's emotions and they will more often than not end up supporting you, even if it means that your policies that they don't even take the time to think about are going to kill them because you you don't like, you know, LGBTQ uh, brainwashing in schools and you don't like the Great Reset. And you don't like global warming. You could say it, but then he just signed on to the COP21, COP28 agreements completely, fully, no, you know, full commitment for carbon reduction. So it's just words. You have to look at not the words of what people say, but look at. You know, like, like like the Bible says, it's by their fruits that ye shall judge them, right? It's you, you look at for good or for bad. Look at look at their their effects of what they've done, what their policies are, then make your decision. So, and and yeah, people and Malay is such a train wreck. You mentioned the Maastricht Treaty, and I remember when Ireland were, you know, having the choice to vote. Not every country had that. It was the Lisbon Treaty, and I remember we yeah. voted no, but that wasn't the right vote. We had to vote again. <laughs> And I remember there was a few politicians that had actually read through this and I knew straight away, this isn't good. And the people that were actually all the politicians, the Fianna Fáil, you know, Fianna Gael were coming out telling people to vote for it. And they were even being exposed. They hadn't even read it themselves. So like when you've got the EU running in that way, created by not the people in Europe, which they think, they think their MEPs are actually controlling this and it's a big farce. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, it's absolutely it's it's a total illusion of democracy, and these are these are the representatives of the liberal democratic rules based order, right? Unelected bureaucrats like Van der Leyen and now Zelensky, who abolished all elections as well. Um, Biden, whose elections are whatever questionable, but I, the the point is, yeah, I mean, the, these are the this, these are the most anti democratic, anti capitalist institutions that are professing to represent the democratic capitalist West. And it's like, no, this is, you're, you're feudalists. These are feudalists and feudalism can come under many different flavors. Um, but it is what it is. It's the same thing always. Um, same thing that Isaac Newton worked for too, right? Isaac Newton was the, uh, the, the, the master at the, of the mint at the bank of England, um, from 1696 for many, many years. And uh, that was a very powerful position at the Bank of England once it was created as the world's second private private central bank. Um, still, still the center of world power today behind the city of London. And uh, Isaac Newton was a sociopath, you know, like this guy was in charge of uh, the Recoinage Act that uh, put hundreds of people to death that were, uh, you know, they basically stole money from the people by by demanding everybody send in their coins and then they were reissued, reissued new coins by the by the mint but that were had less metal in them, same number on the on the stamped on it. And so there's a massive theft from the people whose buying power was decreased, forced into poverty. People were forced to all of a sudden counterfeit. And anybody caught counterfeiting received the death penalty by Newton. And he wanted to watch. He got a fetish out of watching people die for trying to feed their families. You know, like this guy was a sick puppy, but he was he was a part of us. That's why he, they wanted him to be the president of the Royal Society, which he moved to the city of London. He moved it away from its old location near Cambridge into the city of London, um, which is the real command center of the world. And and the thing itself was always an occult black black magician Rosicrucian uh, hub um, carrying out witchcraft. It was never doing science. 
And it was that's part of why the Enlightenment, the, the, the Newtonian science was created as a false science, um, which was never it was never a thing. It was just a, sh a shadow of a shadow. It, it had some usefulness as far as formulas being useful, but it had none of this. It had no truth to it. And it would cripple people who tried to 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 abide by the good best practices of the scientific world, extolled by Newton and Samuel Clark and, and his handlers and Robert Hooke, other and who were all like hardcore occultists. They they weren't actually so-called scientists. They never discovered anything. So they were and they were all part of intelligence agencies, all tied to the same banking complex, all loyal to the same old hereditary systems of mystery cults that took on different brandings after Rome collapsed, but it's the same, it's the same thing, same families, same structure of cult, cult systems in, into the hellfire club, um, right. Of Newton's time and, uh, different, you know, expressions of the, of, of the different Masonic, um, United Grand Lodge of, of England and the Scottish right lodges that Albert Pike ran, um, it's all the same friggin' thing. It's not, it's no different from what was, what was running Babylon as far as like an initiated priesthood of anti-humanists who despise people, see themselves as gods and want to create false gods for us to, uh, worship in a superstitious, um, cultural modality while we're sacrificing and doing orgies and drugs onto some like, you know, <laughs> altar of Gaia, um, which in the ancient Roman world where the earth mother worship nature cults, right? Of Sibel and Atis, things like that. So it's a, it's not that different today. They're, they're also infusing aliens into the mix too. Like that's part of the big, you know, hologram. The, the big puppet show is to now uh, introduce their long awaited grand unveil of aliens to, to be the new replacement gods uh, and demons that we're supposed to be afraid of and adore in a variety of ways controlled by a new priest class of puppet masters. So it's all it's all a giant piece of theater. It's disgusting, but uh, but it helps to know the real sort of history of scientific discovery as a as a baseline to see well what are they what is the oligarchy afraid of? What are they trying to um, you know what do they see as as threatening to them? And 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 let's do more of that sort of thing is my philosophy. Um, you know. So what light can we bring to the end of, you know, to kind of shine people, put a smile on their face because now we have to scare the shit out of them with everything Good that's way. going on. So, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, Kissinger, Kissinger kind of croaking it might help a little bit, like, but uh, just... That was, yeah, I mean, finally, I, eh? They, they seem to be making a lot of errors. Is that intentional or is it just to create confusion to have, you know, everybody fighting at each other or is it that they've reached a certain level so much inbreeding and whatever that they're kind of they're losing control. Well, in my in my analysis, ol oligarchies have multiple layers to them. In the inner in the inner layer um, of the the higher priesthood, so called, um, vicious is vicious is sin. Like the very opposite of all natural human sentiments one could imagine is a culture that is groomed out the opposite the very opposite passions that a healthy human should want, right? Passions are good, but they have to be tempered by, you know, uh, conscience, discovery, reason. Like these things temper our, our passions in a, in a matter that that our desires become duty over time um, in, a, in a healthy, mature, well, like integrated human being. You know, you, you want to do what is good. It, it satisfies your soul, your conscience more than to do what might be more sensually satisfying, but ultimately worse for, your your more important um 
spirit, your soul, people around you, you care about. They, all of these things will suffer if you give into those types of uh, lower order hedonism. So the, the oligarchy is sort of the opposite. They've, they've got a very different spirituality. They're vicious. Um, I think pretty intelligent, but they rely upon many degrees of separation between those inner core sort of thinkers and those carrying out the the consequences of their thoughts in in the real sort of physical world. Um, I shouldn't say, but the physical world. The, these are the auxiliaries. Now, the thing is, over time, the auxiliaries don't know, they don't understand how their tools or instruments of a higher will. They don't fully understand. They, they are given their own micro-mythology that animates their identities, that detaches them from the the, the humanity that they're born into. They're, they're, they're attached. They play a certain role. Road scholars play a role. Fabians play a certain role. You know, you got to... But they don't... They, I don't think, in my analysis, most of them fully understand the game. And there's games within games, right? There, there's subcults within subcults. Some are, are are less instrumental but important. Some are more instrumental but still less important than others. So there, there's there's ways that this thing is, but it's not it's not infinitely complex either. The mind can still don't think that there's like infinite degrees of separation. There's still a quantization, right? A limited quantization of degrees separating thought from reality. Now the auxiliaries will often be victims of the the cultural engineering. Um, that that's deployed to keep the majority stupid, self-centered, um, out of control of the, of their own emotions, and so the the you see this with third third fourth generation oligarchs. You know, if you look at the the quality of mind of um of um like you know the the, the younger breed of George Soros's kid, or or look at the the newer the younger twenty something year old uh, Rothschild kids. There, you know, you can look at some of their their behavioral patterns, you know, doing like raves on yachts, dropping ecstasy. Like these kids are kind of like out of control, but they're the ones who are expected to manage the ship of the ship when they're when the old the old uh, class dies off. They've got like many years of decadence of of sort of getting fat in their own self confidence of being the gods of Olympus, which is I think something which is useful for humanity. That the auxiliaries, especially the lower order auxiliaries, the Ursa Vanderlanes, the people that they need to like do things on the ground, um, are mediocre as, as as all hell. Like the quality of, of manager that that Kissinger represented in his generation, they're they're mostly all dead now. That he represented a much more intelligent manager, uh, disciplined manager ethic, as not not moral ethic, but in terms of like discipline. Um, you don't get that. There's nobody of even close. Who do you got? Anthony Sullivan, Blinken, like is that, or sorry, Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken, are these like, these are like the analogs today of what the Kissingers should be, but they're, they're so mediocre. So, and because, you know, like they're, they're, they're victims of the culture that was, that was created. Um, so they don't know how to think that creatively or flexibly. And that's the, the usefulness for, I think, any patriots is to be aware of the, the mediocrity of the auxiliaries of the system which are, I think, making legitimate mistakes. There, there is some, there's some controlled um, uh, opposition. There's a lot of controlled opposition every, everywhere you look. There's so much of it. But there's also a authentic opposition happening too. Um, it's not all controlled. So, I mean, like, you know, I look at Elon Musk versus, uh, uh, what is it? You know, there's a new fight that they're trying to create as a piece of theater between uh, Hunter Biden and Elon Musk. You know, they, that's, and 
Hunter Biden is, is, has been assigned to come out and, and pick a fight with Elon Musk is like the stupidest smart guy I know. He's so stupid. You know, this Hunter Biden, the guy's like a walking clown show. Elon Musk, this guy's a transhumanist uh, ideologue who I'm, they've, they've created a persona out of this very inauthentic, um, rigid personality type who's a cardboard, very clearly a cardboard cutout. Um, and everything he's done has been part of the program of creating a global decent, like a, a global centralized social credit structure based on infusing us with, with brain chips. And, you know, he's, he's mad at, he's creating, you know, uh, what is it? MRNA vaccines with, through 3d printing in one of his Tesla companies. And he's working with the military industrial complex and, um, you know, he's, his mother's into the occult. His wife was an occult witch. And it's like, we, these are, these are the people you're surrounding yourself with dude. I mean, and so they're, they're obviously getting him to say all the right things, just like they got Malay to say all, all sorts of right things that were catering to the profile of a, of a, of an abused, traumatized conservative population that wants to just hear that somebody with power, somebody with, with strength is, is, is going to say, acknowledges this, 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 this pain I'm feeling. And, and, and so it, they're like trauma cases who are, who are being spoken to and being played around him now being like the great savior. Um, which in my mind, his whole X thing, as he himself says, is supposed to be um, responsible for half the world currency in the coming system, which he already said back in the nineties, when he brought the first version of X X 1.0 online that was sold by a Bill Gates director for $20 million in 1999. So he, he's always made this clear that he wants X to be an everything zone where our biometrics are, um, are everything are also tied to our electric cars. If we're allowed, if we have enough social credits to own an electric car that can be turned off remotely from a centralized place that's tied to the whole like green shutdown. So the whole, and it's all just by saying nice things. And the part of the thing is to get everybody off of the danger. The real danger was Trump's truth social, which was, you know, so they're, they're trying to corral people away from anything that was that sounds kind of like what trump was doing but 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 isn't isn't at all doing that get them all back into twitter in that controlled place and then and then at that point once they're they think that that's their freedom that they'll fight for they're willing to you know do whatever to stay within their little controlled zone of um of my twitter space my x space so all that to say that's that's like one of many examples of controlled opposition that i'm seeing um but overall, the reason why the oligarchy hasn't won, because the oligarchy hasn't won yet. If they had the power that a lot of people attribute to them, they already would have won many years ago. But the fact that there are nation states wielding power to to stop and disrupt the the depopulation agenda of the new world order is uh, is provable. It's it's demonstrable, and I, I mean that's why I wrote all my books was to try to get at how that's been done throughout history, how that's being done today. Where has this principle of the sovereign nation state being wielded? Um, to stop depopulation agendas and feudalism, where has that happened, and how is this happening today? You'll find it in Eurasia. Examples of that, e even though Russia has a deep state issue and, and China has has a, there's deep state issues there. Despite that, there's national sovereignty also and a fight for it and utilization of it to defend people against the uh, the death cult. And uh, and so that's that's important. Um, for people to investigate and there's breakthroughs in, in fusion power and in, in magnetic levitation railways um, all sorts of things that are currently only being used by the military industrial complex in the west not for the civilians which are being used for the civilian sector and the real economy in eurasia which we're not being told about which is why um 
there's a big push for war with China and Russia also. That that's also part of the the target the target to be destroyed. Listen, just before I pass it back to Grace, it's always a fascinating listening to you, but I'm just wondering your books that you've written, especially your new one, is the audio available and are you the voice behind the audio? I it's it's a pain in the arse. I, I gotta I gotta just do it. This one this one's a small enough book. I, I got volume one of my Clash of the Two Americas is an audio. Um but this one it's small enough. I I could just sit down and read it and record it. I should just do that or, or pay or pay somebody to do that. Um get back to you on that. People hopefully, would prefer to listen to your voice, like because they'll feel the passion and everything, the energy that you give out when you're speaking. Oh thanks, man. I hope so. I I I'll I'll give it a shot. It might take an afternoon. I could probably do it. Listen, Matt, thank you very much. Pass you back to Grace. Oh. All right. Hi, Matthew. Do you want to conclude with your, or uh, give us a synopsis of your last chapter? Because I think it would be interesting to share that. And in your chapter is the biogeochemistry and the open systems thinking with Vladimir Vernadsky. Mm. Right, yeah, chapter 12, right. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, it, as you pointed out, um, it's an introduction to the the great biogeochemist Vladimir Vernadsky, uh, who was the founder of the, uh, ironically, the, the founder of the Ukrainian Academy of Science when Ukraine um, still had some some really really super smart people. Ukraine is such a rich, beautiful history; it's it's wild. Um, but Ukraine is, um, yeah, it was it's a big geopolitical battlefront. But but Vernadsky was the the president of the Russian Academy of Sciences. He was the largely the founder, the fa the father of Russian atomic science, and he um, was, in in my assessment of his re of his writings on on the biosphere, on the newosphere, on biogeochemistry, on on so many things, on on some words about uh, non-Darwinian evolution. He was really a, a Keplerian, a follower of, of, of the method of Kepler, of Pythagoras, of Plato, in Russia, in a very tumultuous period. Um, he worked very closely with Madame Curie as he was the student of Mendeleev, the discoverer of the, 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 the principle or organizing the periodic table of elements, right? Around the, the periodic reoccurrence of certain attributes of, of, uh, of, uh, crystallization and, you know, um, bonding of, of certain, so that, that's his, his teacher was Mendeleev, um, and some, some of the greatest minds of, of the world, um, and and he sort of he identified that the only way to responsibly approach the study of natural science or the biosphere was or anything was by recognizing that the biosphere was itself the consequence of astro astrochemical um, astrophysical processes that are tied to the galaxy and cosmic radiation. So he begins his work on the on the biosphere by de by defining the the spectrum. The, the the octaves the eight of forty known octaves of of his time of um, electromagnetic frequencies that come in through the the um, and also which 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 um, elements and isotopes were coming in through cosmic radiation into the Earth through pr principally the 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 aurora borealis you know that that's where what what you're seeing with aurora, aurora borealis is the influx the constant flow of cosmic radiation from the the solar and galactic medium moving through into both the earth inside the earth but also being distributed and and creating sort of a force um within the the living systems of the earth itself being absorbed 
in in all beings and then transmitted tra- or transformed transmitted out of them and then back out of the earth um into the electric circuit which is our our solar system and and and, and the sun and, and the broader galaxy so he's he's approaching it very very in a healthy holistic way it's so good and he's like taking the time to look at the quantization of the many within the the whole and the infinite um and he's making the point that there's three different coexistent phase spaces and it's so important because we're we're told today that there's just one abiotic phase space called uh, physical space time, that's just like three dimensions plus time. We're given a very simplistic idea that that you know the atom is just made up of non living matter moving at random random frequencies, random random vibrations. Um, that that we can't that everything is intrinsically random at the small living and non-living alike and that the apparent existence of pattern of order that we find in living or non-living matter the spheres of the planets all of these things are just a chance it's lucky there's no reason for no principled reason for intelligibility to be what it is instead of just being random blah you know it's stochastic bump you know so um vernazzi's like no there's not just there's not just one phase space that we we have to assume exists in which we have to interpret what living or thinking matter is. There's there's actually three coexistent phase spaces which which don't they occupy the same so-called space, but they're not in space. One being abiotic, the domain of of so-called non-living matter, matter not animated by life, like uh, a rock, you know, in in off a mountain, um, or certain types of rocks. Has has carbon in it or sand, you know, there's there's carbon in it, there's 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 nitrogen, other things, but it's not the the motion of the molecules and the atoms are not influenced by the rock being alive per se. Those those cycles aren't there. The moon is very boring in that sense. So that if you if you just trace over millennia the, the motion of, of a carbon atom on the moon, it's really boring versus a carbon atom in the crust of the earth or on the surface of the earth, it's much more exciting to watch one of these things move, especially if it's inside of a living thing. So the plant, my, my plant over there has, uh, has carbon as well and nitrogen and other things, but it, but, it, but the cycles are, are, are much different. Um, and, and there's carbon in, in this teapot. And, but the difference is that this teapot doesn't grow off a tree. I can't pick it off a tree. It, it's, it's the effect of thought, uh, right? Discoveries into ceramic, into enamel, into uh, design aesthetics. There's certain certain symmetrical designs, color, uh, pigment pigment science. Uh, there, so there's there's actually like prob- probably billions of, of of ideas that this is a fossil of. So you've got fossils in in nature, right? And I uh, you can see the fossils of, of dinosaur bones, but you could also see fossils of thoughts. And I don't know the names of most of the people, but that would would be responsible for everything that makes this thing a reality. Um. But that's the newosphere. So you got the the bio the biosphere, the the abiosphere, and the newosphere are three coexistent phase spaces. And he's like, if you have that as your framework, you you can make discoveries that you couldn't make if you were approaching it from any other direction. And then and the important thing that he has in, in his understanding is that the noetic is maybe in in time the most recent expression on the earth of these three phase spaces, right? Like, you know, at a certain point. There was just living bio, biotic and abiotic material, and at cer- a certain point, the living started expressing consciousness. It started expressing self-awareness. It started, and at a certain point, which we don't understand, 
um, self-awareness, uh, the, 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 what we might call cognitive life, tool-making tool species that could ponder causality, why, that question, why, uh, which doesn't really appear in my cat so much as it does in 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 a in a child, um, that became much more normalized. And so, as soon as you had that, all of a sudden, human beings weren't bounded by the same cycles shaping the the apes and the and the chimpanzees that can't have more than a certain amount of a carrying capacity on the earth relative to, you know, how much however much food is bountiful in nature. And and you know the the the, the monkeys can make certain limited kinds of tools, poking sticks. Right for for getting better ants, they can they can sometimes some kinds of some kinds of, of of monkeys use rocks to break a nut, but you don't seem to have despite this, an evidence of this having been used by monkeys a thousand years ago. That we found examples of, of monkey practices breaking nuts with a rock, a thousand more more years ago. There's no qualitative difference or improvement in the technology associated with with nut cracking by uh, monkeys a thousand or two thousand years ago versus today or beavers that build dams today don't seem qualitatively different dams than the than the dams built um in babylonia uh, sumer's time so human beings can not only use tools to transform nature according to desires of, of causation purpose better worse those judgment calls but we also can make them better we we have this impulse for perfectibility so, uh, and when we have the, the political sort of freedom to express that, we, we can make huge leaps over our limits to growth. So Vernosky was, uh, was really of the belief that the whole universe was animated by principally, even though there was like, like an abiotic domain, he didn't believe that there was any space in which life didn't exist or mind didn't exist. Um, so he just, but, it, but life requires sometimes a mental a uh, certain uh, a material set of conditions to express itself in that fashion that it does on the sweet spot in our solar system that that the earth finds itself within there, there, there there's, there's this temperature electromagnetic sort of comfort zone which is very conducive for the expression of the material uh, of 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 life but that's not life right life is something more than the material expression of it it's the thing that gives vitality um, so you, in Vernotsky's world, there's no, there's no, um, volume of so-called space anywhere in the universe devoid of life as a, a principle, a dense saturated principle everywhere. Just like there's no, no point that you could imagine mind, uh, not existing it. And it's just that, you know, it happened to be that it required a certain amount of time, a certain type of, of physical, environment for humanity to be to emerge with the type of brain system that we have but the brain is a conduit it's like a in vernatsky's writings it's a it's he understands it as, as i think it should be understood as 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 a throne or an an express an, an instrument that that mind expresses itself but it is not mind. it is not the same thing as mind um so you know the, the vernatsky and method is just so useful and like i said his his students and collaborators involved alexander gervich who who created a whole revolution in, in optical biophysics um and many others there's so many others uh gauss not 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 carl gauss but the, but the russian gauss who discovered uh all of this and who made a huge revolution in uh 
in isomer technology and, and, and chemistry and life science in the 1970s and 80s were students of Vernosky and Gervich. And there's this whole revolution that we're not told about. I think the Russians have become more aware of it. It's there's there's re, there's a revolution in appreciating Vernotsky's work in Russia. They actually, I just spoke at an event at the Russian Academy of Sciences last month celebrating his 160th birthday, and that was nice. Um, whereas in the West, it's been totally cut off. Um, so yeah, very useful to uh, I, I tried to make my my last chapter an introduction to Vernotsky's thinking with an outline of of his his core what I, I believe are his core texts that anyone could access that have been translated well into English. Um, and it, it, they provide a good, a good counterpoint to the fallacies of Darwinian biology, Darwinian evolution and, and something more healthy, which is not simply just, you know, uh, absolute creationism either, which is where a lot of people think they have to choose between either being a, a Darwinian biologist or being somebody who takes the Bible or, or the Quran literally or whatever Hindu texts literally um, instead of being a Darwinian. And it's like, no, there's, you don't have to be a religious fundy or um, <laughs> uh, uh, an empiricist. There, there, there is, there's a healthier tradition of science that could be explored, which is, I think much more in harmony with our souls uh, health. <laughs> Matthew, we did it again with your help, the one and ma only Matthew Everett. So um, just just so people know, others can read fast Matthew's book, but I can't because there's so much information. It leads me to many other people that I like to check. And for sure, I'd like to read more on Vladimir Vernadsky. But that's how it is. So, you know, it's very yummy. So. So even for you guys who are listening to this, you can keep on repeating certain, you know, periods and talking about spaces and in between, take a pause, reflect on what you have heard, what you listened to, because that's so crucial. So Matthew, tell them where they can follow you, where they can purchase your book and and oh, let me tell them that I love it that Matthew is in TNT. So Matthew is in TNT radio. So, right. so, so there's no shortage of Matthew. Ever. <laughs> if you want to follow him, follow him with, again, we all follow certain people with not blindly. Okay. You say we're calling for an open system. So yeah, Matthew, go ahead and tell them where to get in touch with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Grayson. Thank you, Roy. Um, I, no, I, um, well, the TNT radio shows is, is a great f experiment. And I, I, I just started doing this yeah, like three weeks, three weeks ago, I've done three shows. Um, and it's fun. It's a, it's a good exercise to, to shut up and listen. Cause I'm, I'm often speaking a lot, you know, and, and I, it's a good, so my, my wife highly approves of, uh, <laughs> of the new show, uh, where I get to just ask, experts uh about what they they understand about things that are important so that's that's fun and um yeah so that that's that's available on tntradio.live every saturday from 11 to 2 um if they want to buy my books um i saw i say you put it there on the screen um but uh, they're on canadianpatriot.org is the easiest place to find all of the books there's all sorts of little links you'll find if you if you take two seconds looking at the website that says buy the books here and then, um, yeah, risingtidefoundation.net has a ton of good stuff on it too. A lot of our videos are going up there under the Rising Tide banner. 
Um, my wife has really spearheaded a lot of new documentaries that we're creating. So that's, that's really exciting. And we're doing um, regular events every Sunday and Wednesday. Uh, so if people want to get involved, I usually say, you know, ideally get a, a paid upgrade through my Substack, and that'll give you access to all of the events. Um, otherwise, you know, if times are tough, uh, the economy is not, not good to most, a lot of people. I, I get it. So just send me, send an email to, uh, info at rising tide foundation.net and we'll send you, uh, the invites to the, the events. And, uh, if you want to read the books as PDFs, um, and, and you can't afford them, um, to buy them online, that's okay too. Just send an email there and, and ask and, uh, you shall receive. Um, yeah, that's it. That's, that's your videos. It. Mm-hmm. Your, your sources of your video clips as well oh yeah yeah the, uh, there's all of the videos are, are always free free access uh the, those are all uh, the documentaries that we've been making big and smaller are, are on uh easier to find on, on canadian patriot we have to make a dot org we have to make a a page to feature those on, on rising tide which we'll do soon yeah, and and of course uh, Cynthia Chung, um, Matthew Eric's better wife or better half. So um, <laughs> better so half, better half. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the right English term, right? Better half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, no, there's a power duo. So when you go to any of this website, and one thing I know is when you link with one person who you can resonate with powerfully, morally, ethically. There you go. It opens up a whole door of opportunities and infinite possibilities in every spaces with harmony, as Matthew mm. will always emphasize that. Okay? So take care, everyone. Do like, share, subscribe, um, follow Roy, Colin, follow Grace Asagra, and any of our co-hosts who joins us. And, of course, definitely make sure you connect with your, our guests. Thank you, Matthew, and feel better, please. All right? Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye.